Without skipping too many beats, let me go ahead and read the last few verses. Uh, we're going to do 12 through 14 as well, just because I'm preaching those too. So let me just pick up where Tony left off. Um, you ever had that happen before? Hey, hey, this is, this is one church. This is two congregations learning how to be one church like we say we are. So we're going to have, it's like the first hiccup of the morning. This is amazing. It's been so good. It's been so rich. Back to that in a second. Let me finish. So verse 12, if you still have your Bibles out. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people. That's right. If you want to read with me, I'm sorry. We don't do that. That's wonderful. (laughs) Okay. So 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Amen. All God's people said, amen. Amen. The word of the Lord. Wonderful. Tony, thank you. Sojourn Spring Branch, our sisters and brothers in the faith, and uh, just one of our family of churches. And indeed, we we call ourselves in our renewed nomenclature, um, one church. And so it's, why are we doing this? Well, a lot of reasons, mainly because you guys are gracious and have an awesome building. But I think theologically driven too, that we say we're one church, we want to start acting like it more. Tony and I see each other, but we don't see each other much. And so families, healthy families, spend time together. So this is a real privilege, and I just want to thank you uh, for this. So, okay, we're in Revelation, in the middle of the, chap- in the, middle of the book, basically, Revelation chapter 11. Why, why this chapter now? A few reasons before we jump in. Um, in your seven-week study that you just started, is that correct? Your seven-week study in Revelation that you just started? Uh, it sounds great. A lot of folks just don't preach the whole book. It's, we're kind of walking through it slowly. But a seven-week outlay is fantastic. Um, you're getting a lot of the, the risen Christ in the beginning of the book, which is wonderful and necessary. And uh, you're getting the glorious chapter 5 coming soon, I think. And that is maybe the most sublime chapter in the whole Bible. And then you're fast-forwarding, if I'm, if I'm right, to the last uh, few chapters, last couple chapters of the book that wrap everything up. And that's great. Um, in ancient books, position was typically very, very important. So the beginning, the middle... And the end were very significant. Uh, I wanted to give you um, the middle of the book. And, we're, and also, we as a church are close. We're, I think I jumped a couple chapters. We're in chapter 9, I think. So um, I wanted to give you something right in the center because you're not going to get that. And because it is central. It is central. And I also, um, this doesn't have to do with why I'm preaching it, but it just happens to be the fact that as I, as I dug into this, it's, uh, it's almost universally said by commentators to be one of the, maybe the most difficult, <laughs> one of the most difficult passages in a very, maybe the most difficult book in the Bible. So that's just a plea for grace from you. Um, it's a tough one. It's a wild, it's a wild passage in a wild book, but it's central and it is essential. And I hope that it will encourage you. Um, this is my last third reason for, for picking this text. We as a congregation, as two congregations, as one church, as brothers and sisters of Sojourn Gallery and Sojourn Spring Branch, we need to hear this message today. The church has a key role to play, the key role to play, in God's establishment of his kingdom on earth and the renewal of all things through it. And we are two small, somewhat struggling churches at a critical juncture, not only in our own congregations, but Sojourn right now is at a critical juncture in her life. And I would even say um, the worldwide church right now. 
Uh, it, she will prevail because Christ is her head and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. But the whole world is, is struggling for a lot of reasons right now. We could list them off, right? We're on the heels of this pandemic and we've got wars in Ukraine and elsewhere. And uh, there's inflation running rampant. And the church of Christ um, is, is needs to know that she is central in God's plan for the renewal of all creation. And this is what this text tells us. Um, and we need this as an anchor and a spur. So I pray that it gives you vision, God's vision for, uh, for your role in this life. So like I said, this passage is central to the book. The content of the seven, you'll get to chapter five in a bit. You haven't been there yet, but our, our people have. Um, the content of the seven sealed scroll that Christ takes from the throne of the ancient of days, from the almighty. Um, he's the only one found worthy. And he takes this scroll, which is basically God's perfect plan for the rest of history. And only this lamb that was slain, this son of man is found worthy to, to, uh, to take the scroll and to open its seals. Um, the opening of the seals precedes this, this chapter. The opening of that book that Jesus takes, the son of man takes through his life and death and his resurrection. Um, but the revelation of the scroll content of what's in the scroll um, takes place between the sixth and the seventh trumpet blast here, starting in chapter 10, moving all the way through the text that, we, that Tony and I just read. So why, why here? Why does John wait till now to tell it? Not, not to open the scrolls. We, we've, not to open this. We've seen the seals. We've heard some of the trumpet blasts. They're, they're terrible. They're judgments. We're going to harp on that, the first point. They're horrific. They're terrifying. God's using them. He's using them to try to get the world's attention, to bring the world to repentance. Um, but in the story of Revelation and of history, that judgment hasn't had the effect of turning people. So, so why here? Um, we learn that the power that brings repentance is not in judgment, but it's in something else entirely. Okay, so we'll get to that. So first, before we jump in completely with both feet, let's just, this is a tough text. So let me... Let me take just a few moments to a little bit of time here to interpret and unpack some of these symbols. Again, I've asked you for grace. I'm going to ask you for grace again. You know, this is a tough one, but this is how um, I understand what John is saying here in chapter 11. And um, and so what we what we see in verses one through three is we see that there's this delineation between those who are in the temple proper and who are God's people and those who are um, on the temple grounds, but outside the nations. Okay. And we have to remember that Revelation is a highly, I think Tony's probably talked about this. I, I don't know. So this is part of two congregations coming together. And I pray we can do this more. I really pray this becomes, can I say habitual? The worship is unbelievable. I mean, to see our two congregations together, to hear you, to see you guys together. It's just so wonderful to know our kids are together. Um, our kid workers may be feeling differently right now, but that's okay. <laughs> God bless them. Seriously. Um, so, but it's, it's a highly symbolic book because it is, that's part of the ancient genre that it was written in. Apocalyptic literature was ret, written to be symbol-laden, and, and there's so much richness as you dig in and unpack it. So it's, it's actually dangerous to read it hyper-literally in most places. So the temple here, uh, if we read it symbolically, don't think uh, necessarily, although this, could, this first three, ver- three verses could well be pointing to, in part, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem which did take about, it is said in history, according to Josephus, 3.5 years by Vespasian and then Titus, his son. They just destroyed the temple, destroyed 
uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, but more largely through that symbol, what we see here is that the temple is where God is. In the, in the old, under the old covenant, the temple was where God met with his people through sacrifice. So the guilty, and we're all guilty, would come to God offering something that wasn't guilty. An innocent animal. And that innocent animal would take the place of the guilty so the guilty could be free to be in God's presence as we were made to be. Right? So it was a symbol, a picture of what was to come. And the temple is where God met with his people in peace. And um, the temple under the new covenant becomes all of creation as we, God's own people, through the work of Christ, become also, again, this, see the layering of these symbols? As we become those who look to the Son of Man as uh, the place where God and man meet in peace. We become God's temple. We become God's presence here. So one, one thing we see for sure is there's a clear delineation in this history, in this time period that John is talking about, which I'm going to argue the whole book of Revelation is the history um, of between the two comings of Christ, between the two advents or arrivals of Christ, between his first coming and his second coming. So actually, if you look at verses one through three, I'm just going to argue right there. We're told that it's 3.5 years 1260 days or 42 months. That's all the same amount of time. If you break that down, that's all 3.5 years. And um, I'm going to argue that that is John's symbolic way throughout the book of talking about what the whole book is talking about. The time frame between the two advents of Jesus. His first coming and then when he returns. Okay? And so what John is saying here, I believe, as I unpack this, and I, of course, looked at other commentators, is that there is a divide moving forward. It's not just like the whole earth gets taken over by all at once by those who are gods. There's a clear delineation between those who are gods and those who are his temple and worship him and have his presence in them and the nations. And there's a clear animosity between the two. Um, why 3.5 years, if I'm interpreting that rightly with other commentators? Why, why is that not just some time in the future, but the time right now? History, the church age. The age of the spirit between the two advents of Christ. Well, maybe because the number seven is a number of completion, as our congregation has heard. Um, I won't want to say ad nauseum, but you've heard it a lot, right? John has about four or five favorite numbers. Seven is one of them. Seven's a big deal in the first book of the Bible. God made all things in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested completing, bringing in seven all things to completion. Seven's a big deal. Revelation is the last book, and it speaks over, over the whole Bible, and especially to Genesis. And it's a capstone. It's a completing book. And so John loves the number seven as a, number, a divine number, God's number, a number of fullness and a number of completion. 3.5 is half of that. It's a number of not completion. So what we learn here is that it's not always going to be this way. But, 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 the, but the nations are going to be, and the world is going to be opposed to the message of God. But God will have his people, okay? Um, all right, so let's dig in a little bit to a few more of the symbols before moving in to some of the points here. The two witnesses, we see these two witnesses, and they're freaky. I mean, they are full of power, and they, there's fire coming out of their mouths. They're like dragons, right? And people are falling dead in front of them, then they fall dead, and then they rise again. And there's an earthquake, and it's, and there's, it's, it's terrifying. So um, two witnesses, a few things there. The, the two, so I've already said the temple is, is the place where God dwells. It's the people of God. It's the church. What I want to argue here is that the two witnesses, and I'm not alone in this, believe me, are, again, the same thing with a different symbol. John does this a lot. He says through multiple symbols, he layers meaning. 
So the temple is the church. The temple is God's people in the world, heavily persecuted, but victorious, victorious as we overcome through the blood of Christ and conquer. These two witnesses, I want to argue, are also representing symbols of the church, God's people. Um, you had to have two witnesses in the, under the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy. You had to have not one, but two witnesses to have a cogent uh, witness that was, that was legally binding, that, was, that, was, that would, could hold in court where you would be listened to. And so what, one of the things we see here is these, these witnesses, and I want to say this church, God's people, speak truth. What they testify to is true. We're given the, the figures of a lot. They're called Elijah and Moses. Again, that's symbolic. Elijah and Moses were God's servants in the Old Testament, and they were so important, big players in God's economy. They're also called olive trees, okay, and lampstands. We'll get to lampstands in a second. When they're called olive trees, they're called, these two witnesses are called two olive trees. So we have, that gives, it helps us to interpret. What does that mean? That comes from a passage in Zechariah 4. Okay? And in that passage, um, those two olive trees represent two anointed ones, two that God anoints. And one of them is Zerubbabel. He's a governor, a ruler. He's a king. He's a king figure. And the other is uh, Joshua, the high priest. So you have a king and you have a what? A priest. Okay? When I say kings and priests, what do you think of? Jesus is the king, the priest, and the prophet. And in him, when we look to him and are united to him by faith, we too are made the people of God. This promise was given to the people of God in the Old Testament. Exodus 19, you shall be a kingdom to me of priests. It's realized in Jesus Christ and offered to Jew and Gentile alike who will come to the Son by faith and be made sons and daughters. This, these two witnesses are kings and priests who are in God's presence who speak truth. And the world cannot stand against this truth. Okay? Um, they also, you see, these, there's oil uh, associated with olives in the, in the ancient Near East. Um, oil is used for anointing kings and priests, just again to sort of argue that. The oil often symbolized the Holy Spirit in this anointing. These witnesses, where do they get their power from? They get their power from the indwelling presence of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells in them and empowers them to be what? Lampstands, lights. They shine the light of the very presence of the living God in a dark world. Uh, And we're already told, this one's a little bit easier. John tells us in Revelation 1, you've been there, you've already, I think, looked at Revelation 1. What what are the seven lampstands in Revelation chapter 1? What are we already told that they are? The church. So see, I've labored all this way. I could have just started there and said, okay, the lampstands are the church. But we want to see the layering here of symbols because it adds richness to John's understanding of what the church is to be. And that's what I want you to get. And that's what I want to get deep into me in this time where there's a sense in which we're teetering. We're rebuilding. We're looking to God and saying, Lord, do you have a place for us? Do, do we matter in this culture? Do we matter in this world? What is our role? Your role is central. Your role is central to the witness of who God is and what he has done. It literally holds the book together in Christ, who is the beginning and the end. Okay, so the lampstands provide, the church provides the light of the living God in a dark place. Um, Again, just to rattle these off and then we're going to jump in um, in earnest. They stand before the Lord of the earth, these witnesses. That's Elijah, 1 Kings 17, 3. He says, the, the living God before whom I stand. Okay? They have the power to stop rain like Elijah did. They bring plagues, blo- uh, water turning to blood and other plagues uh, like Moses. There's power in their words, verse 5. None can stand against them. Yet, what? What happens to them? Are they impervious to pain and destruction? What happens to the two witnesses? They speak in power, but they're killed. 
Hey, the world hates them and they're killed. They're protected, but not from harm. They're not impervious to harm, but they're protected in a much more substantial way, which we'll get to. What does all this mean? They're prophetic. These witnesses, the church is prophetic. Um, They speak God's word as God's people. They're his. They belong to him. They're his appointed witness to the world. And they are telling the world, here's what God is like. And this is what he has done. Okay, so let's jump into the power of the church. I just want to this is one of the mother lows of this really somewhat abstruse, highly symbolic, difficult and central passage in Revelation. The power of the church. Let's just sit here for a bit. The power of the church. So not only are these two witnesses standing in God's presence, ministering his presence to the world, they're also maintaining the true worship of God surrounded by nations that are opposed to God and really have no understanding, they think they do, of how to get to God, what God is like, uh, or who he is, and what he's done. So the church, one of the key functions of these witnesses and of the church is to maintain true witness to God and worship of God in the world. This, is, this function of the church is highly disdained and disregarded in our culture today, where anyone can basically come up with their own truth. My truth is my truth for me, and your truth is your truth for you. Understanding this, that the church alone has been given the privilege of having the treasure of maintaining true worship of God, the only true worship of God in this world, and showing the world, proclaiming to the world, this is how God is to be worshipped because he said so, And this is what he is like. And this is how he has made a way for you to know him is essential. Essential. Um, Okay. So how is this done? How is this done? This is kind of one of the key questions that I want to get to that's in this chapter. How does the church tell the world what God is like, how to approach him, and how does it bring sinners to God? So to answer that question, I want to zoom out from this chapter that Tony read. and, And I just want to kind of look a few chapters back. And then, and then get us here. So if we zoom out, um, Richard Bauckham, uh, a New Testament scholar, points out that the judgments that precede this chapter. So I've talked about in chapter five, you're going to get to this sojourn spring branch in a couple weeks, right? Next week. It's maybe my favorite chapter in the whole Bible, along with Romans 8 and a couple others. Okay, can you have three favorite? No, you can't. But it's sublime. It is, it is knee-hitting, face-down, glorious Uh, chapter where again Jesus Christ approaches he cuts the Gordian knot he solves the intractable problem of bringing sinners who are made for God but who can't be in God's presence to a holy God and we're going to talk about how he does that and we know we've been singing about it but um, that is chapter five it's wonderful the whole universe the whole creation hits the deck in an atomic explosion of praise when he does this after that you start to see the seals opened up on God's plan for history, and then you start to hear trumpets blown, and then after this, you start to see bowls of wrath poured out. I would argue that that's actually the same thing re- repeated multiple times and with increasing intensity each time. You're not, it's not a chronological telling of history. John loves recapitulation. But what the point I'm trying to make here is that before this, we have seals open and we have trumpets blown. Are they nice or nasty? Can I just ask you? They're nasty. Sojourn, Sojourn Galleria at least better pipe up. I know. Okay. We got, we got the, the, the seals are open and the, the trumpets are blown and they are rough. 
But Baca makes this point. They're limited. Every time, in one argument, every time a trumpet is blown or a seal is opened, there's a third of something that dies. Like a third of the stars fall from the sky. The sun, a third of the sun goes dark. Um, a third of people die. A third of the water turns bitter. And people, it's just death and destruction everywhere. And again, I would argue these are symbolic. Um, but one of the arguments for this being a repeat, it's repeated over and over again and not this, it's not a different thing happening each time throughout the book is how many times can a third of the stars fall out of the sky? So he's saying the same thing with increasing intensity each time. But the point is this, they're limited. Why a third, a third, a third, a third? They're limited. Why are they limited? Um, it's a sign, Balkum says, that these seals, these judgments, these seals and trumpets, and then eventually, well, the bowls are a little bit different. They're meant not for destruction, but repentance. If they were meant for destruction, what would happen? Three-thirds, gone. Okay? They're not meant for destruction, but for repentance, but it doesn't work. As Revelation, I'm not, this one's an easy one to affirm. It doesn't work. Revelation 9, 20, and 21 clearly states this. I'm going to read it. Revelation 9, 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons. How do they, how do, they do that? Are they, do they have little idols and are they doing seances? No. How do you worship demons? Of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Do you know that materialism is demon worship? How guilty am I? How guilty are we of that in the West? Um, they did not repent of worshiping these things that God made that can't see or hear or walk. Verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So he covers a bunch of sins that murder isn't just me killing someone. It's hatred in my heart. Mer- Meryl talked about that up here bravely. Good for her. Wonderful. We all struggle with that. Wow. I'm a murderer. I'm a liar. I'm an adulterer. Okay. Uh, I'm a materialist demon worshiper. Wow. Okay. So no, no one is changing or very few. No one is coming to God. Bauckham says judgments alone, it is implied, do not lead to repentance and faith. Judgments alone do not lead to repentance and faith. Um, this, this helps explain. So that's chapter nine, the end of chapter nine, early in chapter 10, it helps explain this enigmatic fact. In early in chapter 10, right before the, our passage today, where John hears these su- seven thunders, okay? He's had, look, he's had seals open, terrifying. He's had trumpets going, terrifying. Then these thunders, seven of them, boom, 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 crack, boom, boom. Feels like you're in the middle of King Lear, all right? And judgment's coming, more judgment, another series of this percussive judgments. He's about to write that down, but what happens? There's a voice from heaven that says, Stop. You heard them, don't write them. It's weird, it's enigmatic. It's not that God's patience has run out. So Balcom says this, let me quote him. He says, in other words, the process of increasingly severe judgments is not to be extended any further. It's not that God's patience has run out, but that such judgments do not produce repentance. If judgment doesn't produce repentance, we have to ask, what does? What does? That is what this chapter and the one following, chapter 12, show us. And 11 through 13 are really of a piece. They're the center piece of the book. The book, I would contend, if I had more time, is, it's, seven, it's seven periods repeated with increasing intensity each time. Um, and there are clear delineations for that, I think. Uh, this, 
Chapters 11 through 13 are the, are the fourth of seven. So you have three on the front side and three on the back side. We're right here in the middle of the book. This is central here. Um, so in this central part of the book, we are shown what produces repentance. And we see these two witnesses and we see them pro- proclaiming this message and we see the world hating them and we see more than that. If the seven thunders are not revealed by John, what is revealed? At last, the contents, like I said earlier, of the seven sealed scroll are given to us here in 11 through 13. What is God's perfect plan to accomplish all things, to bring all things together in heaven and on earth, to restore peace between God and man? Let me quote uh, Bauckham again and say, uh, chapter 11 here gives us a nutshell of what happens in 12 through 15 and what's elaborated in chapters 12 through 15, which we as a church gallery will go through. Um, sorry, Spring Branch, if you want, if you want to know, you have to tune in. Um, you guys are getting beginning in it. No, we're going we're gonna to encapsulate that right here, right now, which is one of the reasons I'm preaching this today. Um, Richard Bauckham says this. Y'all tune in. This is really key. Okay, thanks for staying with me. He says, the remarkably universal positive result of the witness's testimony, the two witnesses, right? is underlined by the symbolic arithmetic, that's why I had to read this first, Tony, of 11 verse 13. In the, so it's a symbolic arithmetic. John is sneaky. I call John Sneaky John because he's sneaky. He's like the Caribbean Ocean when you, you're there and you've, uh, you look down from a boat, you know, and it's super clear like pool water and maybe you're going to scuba dive and you're like, okay, that's 10 feet down there and the guide's like, no, it's 90. That's John. He looks shallow. He's profound depths. Okay. In the judgments by Old Testament prophets, a tenth part, you see this in Isaiah 6.13, Amos 5.3, a tenth part or 7,000 people, 1 Kings 19.18, are the faithful remnant who are what? Spared in judgment. The rest are judged, but you have one tenth or 7,000 who are a remnant who are not judged but saved. You get that? Okay. That's in the Old Testament. So a, a faithful remnant is spared when judgments wipe out the majority. In, in a character, here's Sneaky John. In a characteristically subtle use of illusion, John reverses this, says Bauckham. Only in verse, in verse 13, what happens? How many suffer the judgments? 7,000, one-tenth. At last, this judgment leads to salvation on a large scale. One-tenth are judged but the other nine-tenths are saved. Rather than 7,000 being saved, a remnant, a remnant 7,000 are judged while the rest are saved. What has changed? What has led to this glorious inversion? So there's a difference between the Old Testament prophets and the church. There's judgment and salvation in both, but they're inverted from the, under the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And this is a big deal for me to say because I'm you know, reformed in my theology and covenantal, and I like to emphasize the continuity of God's plan in history that's consummated and brought to full light in Christ. But if you read the book of Hebrews, it's very clear. There are major differences. It's all of a piece. God's only ever had one plan, not two. There's no plan B. And it's all realized in Jesus Christ. Um, And that was always God's plan. But there is a difference. In the Old Testament, you have judgment everywhere. That's why people think Old Testament God, nasty. New Testament God, Jesus, nice. Even though they never mention there's plenty of salvation in the Old Testament. And Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. Okay, Um, but there's lots of judgment in the Old Testament. It's writ large. Salvation is there, too. I mean, for goodness sakes, we have the Exodus, which is an amazing picture of what Christ comes to do. Um, But even after that, Israel, they don't 
they were delivered and then what starts to happen? Are they model citizens? No, it's no sooner do they get on the other side of the Red Sea than even before that, they start complaining and grumbling and it reminds me of my own life sometimes, I have to say. But so judgment is writ large. There is salvation. It's, it's, God saves the people, but it doesn't seem to work. And oftentimes in the prophets, you have, it's laden with judgment, laden, laden. If you read Isaiah, which I've just been through, there's chapter after chapter, tens of chapters of tens of chapters of judgment. God, not, only, not only over the nations, but over Israel. And, in, and then you have salvation. It's always offered and coming. And in some prophets, you literally have one or two verses. Some of the minor prophets will just have one verse of salvation. The rest of the whole book is judgment. Okay? In the New Testament, salvation is writ large. Right when we start the Gospels, we see salvation has come. The King has come. Um, so where there's a scarlet thread in the Old Testament, it's, it's this this bloody and wonderful and glorious salvation offered to us to the person of God and his son himself in the New Testament. Um, so the emphasis in the New Testament is on salvation through the cross. And we see that encapsulated, packed into this one image where what is the message of the witnesses? It's ba- you can understand some of that by seeing what they're wearing. What's their garb? Now, their garb does point to the fact that they're in the spirit of Elijah. But their garb is sackcloth. What that means is repentance. So whereas judgment didn't produce repentance, what they are preaching does. And the world looks to them and many are saved, even though many are also hostile. Um, And what they are preaching and what the church is preaching, what the message that we are given to the world to show the world, this is how God is worshiped. This is the only way he can be worshipped. And this is how, as a sinful people, we can come to God. And this is how, as a sinful people, not only can we know God, but we can be brought fully back into the fold, made his children again, and have his love poured out upon us. It's through pointing to the cross. It's through pointing to the cross. When we look at Jesus Christ, he's the one that inverts this judgment and salvation arrangement. Jesus Christ came and he took the judgment that we rightly deserve as sinners. We're not able to stand before God. We're the guilty ones bringing up an innocent sacrifice. And the innocent sacrifice isn't a lamb. Do you know that a lamb never took away a single sin? But all the lambs in the old covenant pointed to the one who would come. The one who would come. Behold, it is written of me in the book. Uh, okay, I have come single-handedly to do your will. I looked around and behold, there was no one. So I trod the winepress of God's wrath alone. What did he do? He, who was the only one who didn't deserve the wrath of God for his life, took it upon himself. Right? When he comes to proclaim his mission, when he comes out of the wilderness after a 40-day fast, fighting with the devil... He, uh, victorious, never having given in to the devil's temptations, unlike the first Adam, the second Adam is victorious. He comes out in power, skinny. Have you ever thought about how skinny Jesus must have been? He was a stonemason and a carpenter who walked everywhere, and he fasted for 40 days. And then he comes out, and he begins his ministry. Can you imagine how thin he must have been? But imbued with, blanketed with, clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he, he has this speech This sermon is the shortest sermon ever where he says he reads the text and then he sits down and he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. 
That's a sermon. You wish right now that that was my sermon? <laughs> I see some people nodding their heads. Yes, I do. I'm not Jesus, y'all, but I have him in me. Um, and I'm preaching him. He comes and he reads this beautiful text from Isaiah. And he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. I make sense of this text. And what the text says is this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Of the Lord God is upon me. Basically, to set free the prisoner. To break the bonds that enslave us. To make whole the shattered. The Hebrew says, the shattered of heart. Not just the broken of heart. Do you feel like your heart is shattered? Jesus is the one that came to restore our hearts. To break us out of the prison of slavery and sin and addiction. And to take those who are sitting on a dung heap. On a, on a heap of, of ash. And misery and brokenness. And to restore and to put a beautiful headdress. And to clothe with beautiful garments. How does he do this? How he does it is that the next line in Isaiah says. Um, the next line in Isaiah says to, to basically bring to proclaim the judgment, the day of the judgment of God. That is exactly where Jesus stops when he says, I've come to fulfill this. He doesn't read that line. He stops and he closes the scroll. How could he do that? And the answer is because of the cross. You know this. The answer is because he went to the cross, he took the judgment. He stood between us and a holy God who has to punish sin because he can't wink at it. He cannot wink at it. It has to be, evil has to be done away with because it destroys his wonderful creation. He gladly, for our sakes, dumped all, all of his wrath against evil and sin upon his own son. His own son gladly stepped in that place and took the judgment that we deserve so that he could just come and say, all I've got for you, all I have to offer you is beauty in place of ashes is taking you out of prison because I'm going to the prison because I'm going to be incinerated like the Passover lamb. Nothing can be left over. Everything that is not eaten has to be thrown into the fire and burned. And Jesus Christ, can I say it with reverence, what we see of him on the cross where he is being having nails driven in, where he is stripped completely naked in shame, being treated as a, a murderer and a thief and a sinner, the worst of all punishments. That is nothing compared to what he experienced when the wrath of God for your sin and for my sin was poured out on him. And he became, 2 Corinthians 5, he became my sin. He became, he had never known sin. He became my sin. The hopelessness, the misery, the darkness, that stuff that Meryl was talking about today that just makes you miserable, that times one trillion, trillion, trillion sons. On Jesus, in Jesus, into his bones, into the warp and roof of his person. And he buried it and he conquered it and he rose and he defeated it. Isn't that wonderful? And that is what these two witnesses are preaching. And that is what the world hates. Because our message is, it's a message that anyone can come. Anyone can come, Jew or Gentile alike. You come into God's presence, into his temple and have his presence fill you because of what Christ has done. Okay? But the message of the cross is also very offensive. Because Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome. That's not offensive to the Jews. He came to say, I'm going to the cross because this is what you deserve. This is how nasty. This is how big of a problem you've made between you and God. This is how nasty your sin is. The worst problem for me is me. Me. 
That's, that's offensive. That's why we have to die to experience resurrection life. So, so that's that. Um, and I'm, for the sake of time, going to be very brief, uh, very brief when I say, the last point is really just to line these next couple things and then I will wrap up. Um, because I've clearly already preached a sermon. So we see that the turning point here uh, from judgment to salvation is the coming of the Christ and the proclamation by the church of his message. And it's the message that was given to the Old Testament saints all along. What was the promise to... I mean, Adam was... He wasn't Jewish. Adam was the king of humanity. And then we see things narrowed down to Father Abram. And Abram is the... Abraham. Abram become Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. But what was the promise given to him in Genesis 12, 3? I will make you a father of the Jews. Is that what God said? No. Of many nations. Uh, so you, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see this in the prophets. Okay, what's whispered in the time of Abraham and in the law is proclaimed with a trumpet in the prophets. The day is coming where one is going to come. He's going to make the salvation of God available to all people. Americans, French, Jews, pick your race, okay? Male, female, young, old, okay? Horrible, egregious, sinner, respectable sins, but still we understand far from God. Anyone, there's only one way. Anyone can come through one way, Jesus Christ. Not only do we see that here, but we see that the message and the life of the church and these two witnesses is not just the salvation from the world, but the salvation of the nations. We see that here. Um, and the remarkable power that they have, where, where do we see the power really explode in this text? And don't worry, the suffering of the church, point two, very, very short. We see the power after they are killed and they rise. We are not as a church impervious. God does not have his, he has his hand on us. We will not experience his wrath if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. The judgment of God in your life went on Christ. If it doesn't go on Christ and you are not hiding in him by faith, it will go full force on you. Those are the two options. Those are the two paths for every single human. And that is why the message that we have to preach is so offensive and so welcoming all at the same time. You have to die. It is a message of death. And through that death, resurrection power comes. Given to us by the work of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. And so the church is called, you know, point two, after the power of the church, the church is called to suffer. Um, there's so much goodness that I have here. I was going to take you to the suffering of the early church. I was going to take you around the suffering of the global church. Even now, let me just say one word on that. Ukraine. Jesus suffered. He promised that his church will suffer. What is his call? Come and follow me and pick up your cross. That is, that is, that is a path of suffering. We in the West are terrible at this. Ukraine right now, the church is filled day and night. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We are seeing that in all the persecuted areas of the world right now. As the church grows, it always grows on the edges. It always grows on the persecuted edges. Is that coming more for us? You betcha. Is that a good thing for the church? You betcha. Is that a good thing for the world? You betcha. It is. That's how God's kingdom grows. Do we seek out suffering? No, that's masochism. But we better expect it. We better not flinch from it. And we better know that these witnesses, they're taken up. They're taken up and made safe. We are seated, Ephesians 2, in the heavenlies. That is our true position. We cannot be touched. Though we die, we cannot be touched. And we have a message to proclaim. And finally, we are headed somewhere good, friends. 
We are headed somewhere good. So our message is both, as we see in these witnesses, it's both to warn and to woo. Let us be a church who warns people and who woos people with the beauty of Christ and the all-sufficiency of what he has done. There is no other way. But he is the only way we need. It's an absolutely inclusive message. It's an absolutely exclusive message. Through Christ alone can you come. Um, But in him come one and all. There's, uh, I'll say this, and then the last point is literally a line. There's a, I was listening to a podcast this past week, April 27th, World Podcast, about six minutes from the end if you want to listen to it. Um, there's a, just a common, just a normal everyday Joe, it's my dad's name, normal everyday Joe, um, in Ukraine. His, his name might be Ivan or something. And um, he's, he's a Christian. And he is going around right now to bomb shelters at night. He's, got, he's married, by the way. He has kids. Think about this, ladies. Oh, men. He's going around at night. Uh, he's moonlighting in bomb shelters, preaching the gospel. So he's going to bomb shelters where people are like, we're going to die. And he's preaching Christ. Do you think he has a captive? He literally has a captive audience. People are coming to Christ in droves. He's not the only one. And his wife says, it, it's, it's hard right now because we're getting bombed. And, and, and uh, you know, invaded. But also, uh, my husband, I don't ever know if he's going to come home. This is the work of the witnesses. This is the work of the church. This is our mission. We are to be an outgoing church. Just as Jesus Christ left heaven and came to rescue us, we too, you see this in the book of Acts, you see this throughout history, you see it today, we go out proclaiming a message of salvation. And that's not our end. That's not our end. If you read the rest of the text that I didn't, even I didn't read, that finishes out the chapter, it's of, it's the same thing that's already been said that will be said over and over again by John. He recapitulates. It is that what we are looking forward to, these are the shadow lands. We have a feast coming. We have adventure and exploring and judging and creating with no tears, no locks on doors, no cancer, no ennui. No anxiety, no dismay, none of the stuff Meryl talked about, it's all gone. Perfect horizontal relationship, perfect vertical relationship, and the relationship won't even be vertical with God because he will be with us, our king, bodily, reigning with us, wiping the tears from our eyes, and that's just the beginning. God bless you.